Job, we're back. Dun, 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 dun. All right, just so you know, we are making our way back around the mountain this week because we've had all three friends with a go at everything, but we're nowhere near the end of the book, so you know what that means. All three friends get to go again, so it's, it's like the roller coaster. They got off through, that was fun, let's get back in line, and they got back in line, and they're going to go for it. So Eliphaz is going to get another shot at trying to convince Job that he's evil and is headed for hell and judgment because of what's going on around him. Um, it's going to go pretty much as well as the first round has gone. One of the things, somebody had mentioned this to me last week, so... I was happy, by the way. It's not often that somebody asks me a question or something. I'm like, oh, yay, I've explained it well. So I I was happy about that. But just to be on the safe side, my thought process, if, if somebody else is thinking through this and more than one person is probably thinking through this as well, life is messy. Life is very, very messy. And it requires a level of patience and certain level of wisdom to make sense of things. And if you're not paying attention, theology can get messy really quickly as well, which again requires patience and wisdom to slow down and think through things. And that's part of the failure that we're seeing here in Job, is everybody's in such a hurry to explain to you how brilliant they are and how they know what's going on and who's been right. Nobody has. Nobody has. Anybody else's parents give them the thing, better to be thoughtful, better to be silent and thoughtful than to open your mouth and remove all doubt? <laughs> That's kind of what has been going on in Job thus far, is everybody's been so quick to explain something that they're not actually explaining anything. What's been forgotten? Right understanding of God, right guidance by the Holy Spirit, and a focus upon the salvific work that God is accomplishing. Now, I'm phrasing it that way because for us, I would tell you, a focus on the salvific work in Christ. Would they have understood that? (laughs) Yes and no. And this is why I always like going back, even with a book as old as Job, going back to the ancient wisdom, so to speak, of the beginning of Genesis, the primeval history as it is known, because you can build out what we would call a Christological theology off of those first 11 verses of Genesis. And as a matter of fact, if you don't build a a Christocentric theology off of those first chapters, you have understood them wrongly, as Jesus told the people. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have life. It is these that testify about me. So if scripture is testifying to Christ and you read scripture and you got an understanding other than Christ, guess what you did? Yeah, you read it wrong. As Dr. Sailhammer once told me, read it again. What happens if I read it again and I get the same answer? Read it again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. So there will be some repeated themes, but luckily there will also be an opportunity to build on some of those themes as we go around with all three of these friends, as the French piece famously once said, a second time. So <laughs> some of you get those references. I appreciate that. And technically, it's not the French piece. It's what the French piece were making, fr- fr- uh, making fun of because it was um, John Cleese. Now go away, you silly man, or I shall mock you a second time. And then they catapulted a cow over the side of the fence. So it, it is what it is. Let's dive in. Job 15. Then Eliphaz the Temanite responded, 
Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he argue with useless talk or with words which are not profitable? Indeed, you do away with reverence and hinder meditation before God. Now, that's not a bad start. And we've said that, I think, for every single time we've started one of these little speeches. That's not a bad start. What do we want? We want to be slow. We want to be patient. We want to be wise. We want to be thinking through the things of God. This was James when we went through the book of James, James 1. This you know, my beloved brethren. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This is something that's going to become very important later on. This is James 3. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. See, you guys are off the hook, right? It's all on me. No, no, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. You're responsible for what you do with your life. I'm responsible for what I teach you to do in your life. See, there's the difference. With those, stop doing that. TVs are going to drive me insane. <clears throat> with these ideas in mind, this is a good, good place to start. But he continues. For your guilt teaches your mouth, and you choose the language of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I, and your own lips testify against you. Now, we're not doing as well as we did at the start, but we're still doing pretty good. I mean, let's be honest. Based on everything that Job has said, would you say Job's done a good job? Or would you say Job has just proven everything you know about him, that he's a dirty, rotten sinner? <laughs> you, I, in the back, I got that. You would say there's been some good in Job, but let's be honest. Is Job perfect? No. Would the charge that you need to repent before God be an unlawful or a ridiculous charge to Job? No. The heart has been revealed by his trials. Um, time out. Always remember that's the point. Always remember that's the point of what's going on. Who are you when things are bad is who you are. I mean, I can pretend anything when things are well, when life is good and I'm happy and the bills are being paid and the children have shoes and everything's wonderful. It's when I don't know how we pay the electric bill next month. I don't know what we can afford to buy this week at the grocery store. I don't know if we'll have a roof next month. That's when things start looking at and going, Nyeh. that's when you starts flying out because as the little things of life start tearing apart the edges, the core is thoroughly revealed. So... For all of Job's blamelessness, and always remember, from the very beginning, how have we defined blameless? Redeemed of God. Job is not perfect. Job is not sinless. Job is the blessed man of Romans 4. He is the man who has had his sins forgiven. That is who Job is. But for all of that, does Job have areas of his life that need to be chiseled and refined and worked on? Yes. Yes, he does. How do we definitely know that? We have seen them as we have gone through his speeches and his reactions to his friends. So we've done pretty well. Eliphaz is doing all right. He continues. Always notice that. It's like, we're doing good. We're doing good. And then he kept talking. <laughs> were you the first man to be born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that we do not? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Now, time out. This is also not unfair. Is Job the pinnacle of wisdom? No, he's proven that over and over again. Has Job said foolish things? Yes. Is everyone sitting around Job a dunderhead? 
No, always remember, just because you don't like what they've had to say doesn't mean they're stupid. Just because you don't like that doesn't mean it's unwise. You need to stop and evaluate. This has been one of the problems as you've looked at these speeches, is who, how many of them are talking to each other, and how many of them are doing this number, and the words are just, they're talking past each other. Because we accuse you, and you defend yourself against something different, and then you blame God, and we tell you you're foolish, and everybody's just kind of doing this same random weird dance, and nothing's ever getting accomplished. And by the way, the main reason this is fair, what's the point of entrusting teaching to elders? Why would you do such a thing? Why does the New Testament use the term elder for your teachers? Titus chapter 1. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, so this is the qualification. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, here's why, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. This is one of the reasons why I joke with you about that trivia question, why there's a reason for the question. I don't want you to know the answer. I want you to know why the answer is important. Because if I fill your heads with knowledge of Scripture, have I accomplished anything? No. No, I haven't. You'll win the Bible Jeopardy if they ever call you. Congratulations, go team. What we need is wisdom from Scripture. You need to know what it means and then what to do with it. Now, a lot of that is going to be on you, aided by the Holy Spirit, understanding Scripture rightly, and encountering things in your life and applying that wisdom. But it starts with knowing that it's not just facts and dates and places. It is a work of God and an accomplishment of Him. That way, you not just know what to do with your life, but when you encounter things that are, say, just a little bit off, just a little bit twisted, like someone comes to you and goes, did God really say? Now you're capable of going, wait a minute. That's not how that lines up. That's not how this works. A weird example of this. Oh, (laughs) years ago in a former life, I was a restaurant manager. It feels like a former life. There are times when like yesterday feels like last week and 10 years ago feels like a different person. So I always joke that it feels like another lifetime ago because at this point it was over 15 years ago. So, And one of the main things we did was sandwiches. We did cookies and coffee and baked potatoes and salads and grilled items and sandwiches, but our main items were sandwiches. You make a four-ounce meat sandwich long enough, whether it's ham or turkey or roast beef, you know what you get really good at? Reaching into the container that's got the turkey in it and going, that's four ounces, and then you put it on the sandwich. And then the owner comes by and goes... How much was that? It's just a little under four ounces. You didn't weigh it. I know that. So how much is it? Just a little under four ounces. Fine. 3.9. See? You, you do it long enough, and you just know how many the slices are. That's how your Christian living is supposed to be. Because if you reach into that little container and you grab five ounces, you know what your brain immediately did? That's too much. That's just not right. Or we, would have a, we had one guy I was training one time, and he kept messing up the meat slicer and putting it at the wrong thickness. You want to talk about wanting to kill somebody? Because you reach into that little container and go, what is this? None of this is right. You can't make him redo it because you can't slice 
a slice afterwards. Like, we can't use any of this. Chop it up and make salads. Because <laughs> you just reach in and your brain goes, that's, that's wrong. It's just wrong. That's how you're supposed to be living with knowledge of Scripture. That's why knowing what it means is so important. So that when someone comes to you with something else, you go, that's just, it's just wrong. Well, how do you know that? I don't know. I just know that it's wrong. And then I'll stop, be patient and wise, and we will figure it out. That's what's supposed to happen. <sighs> how are we doing? <laughs> yeah, so far not so good. So he warns him, are the consolations of God too small for you? Even the words spoken gently with you, why does your heart carry you away? Why do your eyes flash? Now we're going to time out right here. Are the consolations of God too small? No. Where, pray tell, has Job been given the consolations of God? Just out of morbid curiosity. Has, has anybody done a good job of that yet? Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. We doing real good so far here? Zophar, so far? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. No, we're doing terribly. Why? Because we've moved the exhortation. We've moved the hope to the wrong place. Everything has been about whose righteousness? Job's. Job's. Let's fast forward to your New Testament. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus told the crowds, I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now realize to that crowd, that would have been mind-blowing. The scribes and the Pharisees, those are the really good people. Those are the people I want to be like when I grow up. You know, like when all of my sin is dealt with, I want to be like the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they sit there and talk about scripture and they pray 35 hours a day and they read their Bible another 27 hours a day. And it's just, those are the guys that I want my kids to be like. You're telling me I have to now be better than them? I have no hope. Now you understand the exhortation that, well, who can be saved? Well, with man, it's impossible. You can't be saved under your righteousness. You require someone else's. You require God's righteousness. You require the work of the deliverer, that seed promised to Eve, the one who would be born of a woman who would crush the serpent. You need that, and that's not where the hope has been found. This has all been about, hey, Job, this bad thing has happened to you. You know what that means? You must be terrible, therefore you need to fix it and do better. Well, how often has do better done worked out for you in life? that ever really be like, yes, in the power of myself, I shall clean up everything and make my life perfect. Go me. Uh -huh. If I could have done that, you know where I wouldn't be? <laughs> I wouldn't be in this mess that I seem to be sitting in right this second. Now, in spite of that, he does get the right warning. So fast forward to verse 15. Behold, he puts no trust. This is that wicked guy. He puts no trust in his holy ones and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much, less, how much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. See, this is a good warning. Turning away from God, not trusting in him, not resting in him. Where will that end? Yeah, that doesn't end with the good place, does it? No, that ends with the bad place. This is the right warning. Now again, with that warning in mind, what should be the exhortation to Job? Should the exhortation be, clean thyself up and do better? Or should the exhortation be, trust in God and know that he has not forsaken you and forgotten you? See, 
That's what drives me crazy. This is why I've told you, if you've never read your Bible, especially your Old Testament, and you didn't want to reach into the pages and slap somebody, you didn't understand it when you read it. Because at this point, how many of you want to strangle Eliphaz? <laughs> Be like, dude, it's based on everything you just said. It's, it's, it's right there. The gospel message is right there. And yet, we're not going to find it. So he's going to give his testimony. <laughs> I will tell you, listen to me, and I and what I mean I will also declare. What wise men have told and have not concealed from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no alien passed among them. Now time out. This is important. Should you forget history and wisdom that has come before you? Why not? See, I'm never gonna let you just give me the one word answer. Alright, you ready for bad analogy time? You ready? You ready for it? All right, life is not like a box of chocolates. Life is like a bowling alley. <laughs> no, I'm serious about this. If I gave you a bowling tournament, but I broke your hand and made you have to bowl with your other hand, how, how confident do you feel? Welcome to your life. Sin corrupts what? Everything. It corrupts how you think. It corrupts how you feel. It corrupts the decisions you make. Look, you've never met anyone who has had all the knowledge on what they should do and has done the wrong thing, right? You've never met that person that's never happened in your life where you've gone, yes, according to A, B, C, D, 1, 2, and 17, I should do this. I'm going to go do that. And everybody around you goes, why? I don't, I don't know. Seemed like the right thing to do. And then you look back 10 years later and go, oh, because now you're thinking from a different perspective. That's life. That's what sin does. It destroys everything. What wisdom handed down through the ages is supposed to do for you, it's supposed to be like bumper rails. And I'm serious about this. Go, go to the bowling alley, pull those little bumpers out. Can you roll any gutter balls now? No. Even with the broken hand and like two fingers over here, what can you do? I'm going to hit something. Now, am I going to be a professional and I'm going to win every match? No, but I'm going to hit Something. This is what history and wisdom from the ages is supposed to do for you. It's supposed to be a curb and a guide. It's like looking at your kids and going, listen, I have made the mistake you are making. Here's how this works out. Here's what's going to happen. Do me a favor. Do the other thing. Not because they've learned the hard way, but because I've learned the hard way. Well, how come you didn't do that? Well, this is my parents did this, and I saw what happened. Therefore, I did this thing, and I encourage you. In other words, here was the bad outcome on the bad decision. Here was a good outcome on the good decision. I now encourage you to do what? Follow me. So again, or my great-grandparents did this, and it was good, and my parents did this, and it was bad, and I did the same thing, and it was bad. You know what you should do? Go, let's skip this one and go back and do the good thing. This is how wisdom handed down is supposed to work for you. This is what Eliphaz should be pointing towards. And again, this is biblical. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Bind them as a sign in your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, everywhere you go should be based upon what? Scripture. Everything that you do should be based upon what? The wisdom that God has given. Excuse me. The teaching that has been handed down. This is important. 
There is always coming a day when there will be a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. When the world will have forgotten the goodness, when the world will have forgotten the things that are beneficial. I mean, here's a perfect example. If you go into the modern political world, there is a far, well, I don't know how far left it is anymore, but anyway, we'll just, we'll keep the designations. There is a far left idea. Do you know what one group they want to tax to death? Well, there's the rich, and then who else? Us. Tax the churches, tax the property, tax the offerings, tax everything. Now stop for a second. From their worldview, I have no disagreements with them whatsoever. If you can tax everything else, what makes that thing so special? Now stop though and ask, why was it set up in this country that nonprofits and churches and religious organizations are not taxed? From a secular argument, I'm serious about this. I mean, from a religious argument, you say, well, you don't get to tax that because you're not owed that because that's God's and not yours. But from a secular perspective, why was it not the case that the government taxed churches? France did it. France did it 200 and some odd years ago. You know what the argument was? Because there was a collective benefit to the society to have churches. There was a collective benefit to the society of raising up children, to training families, of keeping them together. It's the same reason why you have a tax benefit if you're married. The government was in the business of encouraging you to get married and stay married. Why? Because couples that get married and stay married and raise children are long-term more stable, and a society based on that is more stable than a society where everything is broken. Now again, do bad things happen? Yes. Do lives break? Does sin corrupt things? Yes. Do divorces exist? Absolutely. Not making the argument. But on the whole, the government had a vested interest in doing what? Encouraging this outcome. Therefore, they gave you a tax break. Therefore, we didn't tax nonprofits. We didn't tax churches because there was a communal benefit to not doing that. That's partially wisdom handed down through the ages. That's a reminder of what was good and how it's supposed to function and how it looks in the modern world. Now, when that gets all thrown out the window, who's the brilliant ones? We are. Who's the smartest people in history? Us. We just took the broken hand and the two fingers on the other hand and we threw the ball down the aisle and we took the bumper rails off. What could go wrong other than everything? This is why these things matter. This is why the history was so important. You understand this. You're reminded as history goes down. Now, Christian, the people you have connection to, who's going to teach them? Who's going to encourage them? Who's going to keep that history and the wisdom of God alive in your world? Welcome to why this has always been an individual thing. And you see this in Israel's history, Joshua uh, chapter 4. Joshua called the 12 men whom he had pointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. This is when God stopped up the Jordan so they could cross through. And each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later, what do these stones mean? You shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. They were interested in remembering the works that God had done. Because there's always going to come a point when the next generation... I mean, look, let's be honest. Do you remember to pass on to your kids and grandkids everything that's happened to you? (laughs) No, of course not. Do you even remember all the big important stuff? No. When does it happen? When they look at you and ask a question, or when they look at you and realize they've done something really dumb, and then you're like, hey, I got some advice for that one. Or when they see something and they're reminded, or when they look at a picture in your house and go, what was that? When was this? Where'd this spoon come from? Why do we care? Why, don't, why am I not allowed to throw these dishes away? You know, 
Why can't I use that towel? These are things that remind you of things that have come before. Same with the memorial stones. Same with the vestiges of culture. Christian, know what's going on in your world and why it's going on because these are connections to the things that have come before and they are reminders of the work of God down through the ages. Just because the world wants to lose its mind and run around like a chicken with its head cut off does not mean you are to follow. We haven't done this in a real good while. What are you supposed to be? Well, they're running around screaming. You're supposed to be anchored, planted, secure in the knowledge of who Christ is, what he has done, and then calling out and proclaiming, hey, what do you mean? Slow down, that's the wrong way to go. Okay, next time they come through, you tackle them, and I'm going to yell at them. All right, see what goes. Go! I mean, something to make sense of this world, because that's the call we're supposed to have. But again, too often, we start doing what? Drift a little this way, drift a little that way, and next thing you know, where are we? I don't know. Where are they? <laughs> this is how quickly it happens and what it does. So he moves on. He, he tries to give, and again, I encourage you to read from 20 through the end of the chapter. We're not going to read all of it. But for all of Eliphaz's complaining that Job is not the fount of all wisdom, you know what Eliphaz starts sounding like? That he thinks he's the fount of all wisdom. <laughs> is he? No, and this is part of the problem. And the reason why I encourage you to read it is, as you read through Job, if you're following along at home or you're trying to keep up or get ahead in places, I want you to realize and think through how often you see both sides of the coin. And I'm serious about that. How often this is judgment, wrath, anger poured out, and it's never mercy and grace and love and salvation. Though We're always losing one or the other. Now, fun little question here. If I tell you everything that I know about something, but I only know half of it, did I lie to you? I don't think so. Am I even really a bad person for not telling you the other stuff? No, I didn't know. But here's the problem. When I tell you this, and I only tell you half of the story, because I don't know the other half of the story, and then I give you advice based on the half of the story that I know, what is my advice worth? <laughs> it's almost useless. Because at the end of the day, there's a whole world that I don't know about. This is the other problem you're seeing in Job. And this is, again, why I caution you to guard your hearts in the world. Because you are tempted constantly to fall onto one side or the other. There are ditches in everything in life. So we've talked about this in numerous aspects. You're seeing one in action. What happens if I am all judgment and wrath and destruction and smiting? Ding. And what happens when I've got all of this going on and I've got no concept of grace and love and mercy and now I encounter the world and I see people that are suffering because floods have destroyed their town or I see people who have you know, lost family members and all the, how much compassion do I have for them? None, because you got what you deserved. You, because what's filling my heart? Now, flip side, let's drive into the other ditch, Christian. And God loves you, and God cares about you, and everything is wonderful, and God is going to accomplish all of these things, and nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. Sorry, I'm trying not to do a Texas accent when I go down this road. <laughs> but I'm a bad person, and I can't help myself. Well, now stop, though. I encounter the world. What have I lost? Have I, am I anything? No, because I am now approving of what? everything. Because God loves you, and God cares about you, and his grace will be poured out on you, and, and that's okay because God still loves you, and even though you've done that, at some point, you have to be able to look at somebody in this world and go, stop it. That is sin. 
God will judge that. Christ's work can overcome that, but stop it. If you can't do that, how do you proclaim the gospel? How do you proclaim the truth of who God is? You need both sides here. You need to drive in the middle of the road. And then you need to be able to look at somebody and say, okay, do we need a little bit more love? Do we need a little bit more anger? What what do we need here? Based on what? How you see it, the guiding of the Holy Spirit, and what's going on here? We're, We're riding in one ditch, and amazingly, we can't make sense of anything in life. When God got to stand there and proclaim who he was, how did he do it? Exodus 34. The Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Well, we're kind of close to one ditch here, aren't we? Uh, Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Well, that just swung real fast from one ditch to the other, didn't it? Because what's true? Right down the middle of the road. Will God judge sin? Yes. Can God's grace cover sin? Yes. Has God provided salvation for his people? Yes. We want to drive where the road is, which is in Illinois, could be an iffy, iffy, an iffy proposition, but you know, assume we're in a good road state, you know? <laughs> I had that when I was a kid. When I was a kid, Virginia had the worst roads on the planet. And I lived just close enough to Virginia that if you went from North Carolina to Virginia, even if there wasn't a marker, you knew when you changed. And then for some odd reason, I cannot remember, was, it, it was his name Jim? Jim Hunt was the governor. And he was out of office. And the next, like, three guys were like, roads? What are roads? We don't know how to build those. And by, so, like, when I was a kid, you knew when the North Carolina roads versus the Virginia roads were because the North Carolina roads were so good. And by the time I was in high school and college, you knew where the Virginia roads and the North Carolina roads were because the North Carolina roads were so bad. <laughs> They literally stopped all maintenance. It was like, oh, hey, I'm on a Virginia road now. Sweet. These things are flat and level and awesome. Whereas North Carolina was like, mm-hmm. So just imagine Illinois roads without the salt. Okay, same, same concept. So with Eliphaz saying all of this, guess who gets to talk next? Yay, it's Job's turn. Then Job answered, chapter 16. I have heard many such things. Sorry comforters are you all. <laughs> Is there no limit to windy words or what plagues you that you answer? I too could speak like you if I were in your place and I could compose words against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips could lessen your pain. (laughs) All right, that's the polite Bible way of saying you're useless. You're useless and you're cruel and I don't want to talk to you anymore. Now, who here wants to blame Job? Because I don't. I'm with him on this one. Eliphaz is useless, and Job, I have no problems with him calling this out. They haven't helped. They haven't pointed him in the right direction. They haven't given him anything of use. Now, time out for a second. How should this have gone? This is why wisdom and patience are so important. Three, wise elders, friends of yours, people who claim to like you, Again, I I told you weeks ago, I think the person who coined the phrase with friends like this, who needs enemies, read Job. Three friends show up to give you comfort, to give you grace, to lift you up in literally the darkest moments of your life, and then tell you how awful and evil you are, and how everything is your fault. How should that have gone? 
Should that have not been pointing to the grace of God, reminding of the encouragement that is present in him, the future hope of his redemption, and the fact that he has forgotten none of his people? And again, you could make that argument based on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. You could make that based on a primeval history. You could explain God's perseverance. You could explain God's mercy, and you could explain his grace and coming kingdom based on those initial chapters. You don't need Matthew and Luke and Ephesians to explain that to Job. You could have done that based on a common history of mankind at that point. How are we doing? Not good. So, Job continues, If I speak, my pain is not lessened. And if I hold back, what has left me. But now he has exhausted me. You could have laid waste all my company. You have shriveled me up. It has become a witness and my leanness rises up against me. It testifies to my face. Job's going to continue on through another like 10 uh, 10 chapters, 10 verses. It feels like 10 chapters sometimes. He's going to continue on for another 10 verses blaming God. Now time out. Has Has God's anger been flared against Job? No. How do you know that? One, he's still alive, but two, you've read the first three chapters of the book where God picks the fight with Satan and explains how Job is his. Now, if you're Job, how do you know that? And this is again where I keep saying to guard your heart. Where is your hope? Where is your trust? Because the person who sits there and goes, I don't know how I know whether or not this is judgment from God. They're not checking their heart. Job should be able to say that I know that I am God's and I know that God has not forsaken me. But this sure feels like it some days, but I know that he hasn't. Again, allowing what? What he knows to guide how he feels. And to your point, I'm still here. I'm still breathing. If God was done with me, what would have happened? It's not not like he doesn't have that kind of power and authority around here. Well, you know, God could have taken my health. He's taken my family. But you know, he can't kill me. I'm too tough for that. That's just dumb. What's the rule? Or don't say them either, right? (laughs) Don't thunk them. (laughs) I like it. We need a new t-shirt, right? Dumb things. Don't do them. Don't say them. Don't funk them. (laughs) Hmm. This is part of the breakdown, though. He's not thinking about who am I and why am I? Why am I the person that I am? Who has carried me this far? Who has been at work in me up until this point? No, God hates me. He's forgotten everything, and he's done nothing good, and we're all doomed. God hasn't forgotten anything. No, God hasn't doomed anything. No, God hasn't forsaken you. If you're worried about it, then that says more about your walk than it does his sovereignty. So we point out the consistent problem. uh, Verse 18, we're skipping ahead, Sally. Oh, earth, do not cover my blood. Let there be no resting place for my cry. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and my advocate is on high. My friends are my scoffers. My eye weeps to God. Oh, that a man might plead with God as a man with his neighbor. For when a few years are past, I shall go the way of no return. Now stop for a second. When I say that Job should know better. It's that little section that makes me say that. Uh, We are at 22. We wind to 19, if we can. (laughs) Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and my advocate is on high. 
in the midst of I'm angry at God and you people are worthless, God will redeem. God will plead my case. Where does that come from? I mean, that's like, could you imagine, imagine in your mind sitting there going, God has done this to me and he has hated me and he has taken everything and he has judged me and I wish he would just kill me, but I know he still testifies to me in heaven. It's like, which one of Job's people are running the ship this week? You're like, you know, did somebody else take over his brain? And the answer is yes, somebody else did take over his brain. Who? The Holy Spirit. Why has Job not gone too far? Because God has put that curb. God is at work. God is protecting. This is why I say, think through. I mean, there's a, there's a joke. I know what I said. I was there when I said it. I, I wonder if Job knows what he said, because I wonder if he was actually there when he said it some of the time, because this is the breakdown. This is not thinking based on who you are and why you're here. Instead, what he's doing is he's taking an actual knowledge of God, but he's reading it through the wrong lens. He's reading it through the lens of the world. Mark 7. The Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites. As it's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. That's a little bit of a problem, isn't it? But it's easy one to fall into. It's easy and tempting oftentimes to try to view God's work through this place, to see it through the lens of what's going on around you. Because let's be honest, where do you live? You live here. And so it's real easy to look at here and then try to figure out who God is based on that. That becomes the breakdown. What Jesus is complaining about is, I mean, think, think about simple commands. Imagine... Imagine an elderly parent coming to you and saying, I can't keep up the house anymore. I can't afford to pay for the people that are keeping the fields and keeping the house. I, I, I can't do this anymore. I need, to, I need some help. Okay, I can start taking over some of the field work. You can move into the house with us and we'll take care of you. That's a, that's a normal reaction, right? We'll figure something out. What you were having in first century Israel, people going, well, I'd love to help you, mom, but you see there's a problem. See, all of my property and all of my income I have designated as a gift to God. Not now. I mean, when I die, of course. But So I can't use it for your benefit because I've given it to God. So it's God's, and I can't spend it on you. Now, you're, some of you are looking at me horrified, and you should because that's, that's awful. That's using God so that who's got an excuse? Me. That's, that's not about God. That's about me, that was one of the justifications that they had. That was one of the justifications that they used. You had little things like ritual hand washing. I don't mean like your hands are dirty because you've been out in the field all day, so wash your hands before you eat. That's a normal thing. People would do that. You'd be like, eh, 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 eh. all right, we're good, food. No, you had to wash, get cleansed, and then while someone poured the water, you had to hold your hands down. And then they would pour the water over your hands, and you would have to stand there and let it drip until it was dry. And then... And I've never understood how this one would work. You'd have to do the same thing with your fingers up. So I don't know if they figured out a way to like alter their elbows. Because my attitude is if you do it like this, that water's going to run right down your elbow and ruin your clothes. But I, these are the things that I think about. So. <laughs> so everybody's walking around with soaked elbows and armpits because the water's running down before a meal. And you do the same thing and pour the water and it would run down off the bottom. And then you would be considered clean. Now you can eat. Are you hungry anymore? <laughs> 
I'm like, it's not worth it. Would you like to come over for lunch on Sunday? Do I have to clean? Yes, no. <laughs> not standing in your kitchen going, can I shake? Is that allowed? I itched, I'm sorry. I mean, random things I think about. The disciples are like, your hands are unclean. Why? Because you didn't do the little poor water drippy thingy. Well, who made that rule? We did. <laughs> well, who makes you so special? We do. Well, who honors that work? God. Mm. Nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. You start defining the world you start defining God according to the course of this world. That's the type of stuff you end up with. That's the type of lunacy you try to put into practice. Rather, you want to define your world according to God, seeing him rightly. So things like 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received us from, that you from, that as you receive from us, easy for me to say, as you receive from us instruction is how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. See, this is not about you being better. This is not about you cleaning things up. This is not about you looking pretty to the outside world. This is about you honoring and serving God. This is about you being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit and thereby rooting out that which pulls you away from him, that which starts trying to cut your anchor. You ready? Well, we will build on our bad examples. You ready? So while you are anchored and you are tethered to whatever it is that you are, that sin that you're keeping as a pet, he's crawling around with a butter knife going, I'm going to cut the anchor line, I'm going to cut the anchor line, and you're going, stop it, no, stop it, no, and it's just continuing, well, if you do that long enough, what's eventually going to happen? Anchor gets cut, now where are you going? I don't know, that's the point, that's why we care about this, that's why we do this, is because I'm trying to stand firm, and I'm not trying to go, wee, and do whatever it is that you people out there are doing, I want to be firm. In Christ. Why? Because he has loved me and died for me. And the sin and judgment that was due to me, he has taken upon himself and he has raised and he will raise me up at the last day so that I will be secure in him. I'm looking for that kingdom, not whatever this brokenness happens to be. And because of that, I'm not letting you cut that anchor. Oh my goodness, that would be dumb. <laughs> you know how the rest of that goes. That's why these things matter. When you forget that, you start bringing your eyes down. You start trying to understand the world from this angle. And I've said this a million times. You try, try to understand this world from this place. Nothing good happens. Nothing good at all. So, we continue. This is where it gets real easy because I can only... Job has a good pattern in his speeches as he says some, a few profound things. He says something that's self-contradictory and then he goes on a tangent of whining. Chapter 17 is Job's tangent of whining for today. And I'm only mostly kidding. My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. I need to read this like the, um, the Israelites complaining about not having any water. The grave is ready for me. Surely mockers are with me, and my eye gazes upon their provocation. I mean, <laughs> I mean, dude is looking forward to people making fun of him at his funeral. That's... <sighs> Matthew 24. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is, in is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. 
if you had to pick a place, and I only picked that, this is why I keep trying to stop on the good things that Job is saying on occasion, because if you don't remember those good things and you continually rest on this, you start putting Job in that false prophet category, don't you? You start looking at that being led astray by his friends who have useless advice. And yet, you just see those little glimmers of hope, those little messages to show you that God has not let go, that God has not forgotten him. How do I know that he's going to persevere to the end? Well, one, I read to the end of the book. You can do that too. It's okay. I won't yell at you. Two, though, because God is keeping him on the track. This is, again, why I tell you, we're fighting, we're fighting, we're fighting. We move that far. What do we do? We celebrate. That's victory. It may not be much, even in Job's life. I'm waiting for the grave. You people are useless, but God is testifying on my behalf. (gasps) That's hope. That's a little glimmer. There's a lot to that. That's what we have to keep. That's what we have to be reminded of on a regular basis. Because, again, the world doesn't get brighter when left to its own devices. Sin corrupts, and it corrupts everything. And as the world keeps spinning, apart from a faithful testimony of Christians, (laughs) it starts looking real ugly and real dark real quick. But with that testimony, with that light shining, there is always hope because there is always God's work. He has not forgotten, and he has not forsaken. He is continuing on. Unfortunately, Job continues on. Lay down now, verse 3, a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there that will be my guarantor? For you have kept their heart from understanding. Therefore, you will not exalt them. All right, uh, this is important for the NASB. You notice anything special about those U's? They're capitalized. Who's he complaining about? God. Yeah, just just making sure we keep this in perspective. Um, What verse are we on? Four. (laughs) He who informs against friends for a share of the spoil, the eyes of his children also will languish. Again, Job judging rightly, seeing some of this. But he has made me a byword of the people, and I am one I am one at whom men spit. My eye has also grown dim because of grief, and all my members are as a shadow. The upright will be appalled at this. The innocent will stir up himself against the godless. Nevertheless, the righteous will hold to his way, and he who has clean hands will grow stronger and stronger. Again, that almost sounds hopeful, doesn't it? Almost like, you know, God is tearing down the wicked, but what will he do for his people? He will strengthen them. He will uphold them. Go back to Job 13. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. That's what you're seeing just in a little bit wordier of a tone. Why? Because God is preserving. God is holding him up. Ecclesiastes 9. I have taken all this to heart and explain it that righteous men... Wise men in their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it, will be for, whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. Part of Ecclesiastes getting this understanding right. What Job gets wrong, Ecclesiastes gets right. Is I look at the world and I see good people suffering and I see bad people prospering and I go, what is going on? This appears meaningless. But yet there's still God. There is still his righteous judgment at the end. There is still the hope in what is going on, that you don't live for here, you live with an eye lifted somewhere else, the way Psalm 121 would put it. I will lift my eyes up to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, he who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. 
And then, of course, Job has to go find his usual ending point. But come again, all you now, for I do not find a wise man among you. My days are past, my plans are torn apart. Even the wishes of my heart, they make night into day, saying, The light is near in the presence of darkness. If I look for the grave as my home, I will make my bed in the darkness. I will call, if I call to the pit, you are my father, to the worm, my mother, and my sister. Where now is my hope, and who regards my hope? Will it go down with me to the grave? Go together, go down. Shall we together go down into the dust? See, every time you think you're getting somewhere, what are we hoping for again? Hey, I'm going to die soon. Yay, go me. <laughs> Christian, is that the hope? No. Is anything outside of God the hope? No. This is where Job gets this wrong. This is where we can learn and cling to the rest of what Scripture does. Go back to Psalm 121. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the, noon by, the, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. The way Psalm 46 puts it. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, so because he's our refuge, because he's our strength, because he's present, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, his people will stand firm. Why? Because his people are grounded in him. His people have a hope in his work, in his future accomplishment, in his redemption. When those eyes come off of God and move back onto this world, hope is lost. Because faith is torn down. Because what are you looking for? I mean, what in this world has, what, in the, what is there to offer in this world that is eternal? I'll wait. Because <laughs> it's not there. You know it's not there. And, and wait for it. The world knows it's not there. That's why, what do we keep doing? Well, how about this shiny object? Okay, what about this shiny object? What about this one? How about this one? Do you like this one instead? Okay. And how about that one? And it's just something else and something else because nothing is built to last. Because sin corrupts everything, but God redeems, God upholds, God strengthens. That's why I've warned you again. How would you answer this, this lament from Job? If your pointing is to anything other than trusting into the final work of God and persevering by his mercy and grace to that final place, I would argue that Job's going to have an argument for you, and you're not going to be able to silence him because he's going to be able to point to something wrong because you haven't pointed him to the right thing. Christian, please do that in your life. Ground the works of your life, ground the words of your mouth, the intentions of your heart in a future kingdom of God, in a hope that cannot be taken away, that was reserved, undefiled in heaven, that is a longing. Disciple your children, disciple your friends, proclaim to the world a hope that is future, a hope that is reserved and set firmly in God, because that's the one that endures. That's where, that's where it lies. Anything else is that little bugger sitting there on your anchor chain going, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. It can't hold, and you can't let it stay there, because nothing good will come from it. That's where the war is found, is in those little places in life, the little, the little voices that come nagging up that, hey, remember that dumb thing we did? Wasn't that fun? No, it wasn't. Shut up. I mean, that's where the battle is held on a daily basis. So think through. Grounded in God. 
hoping in the future work because that's where the security is ultimately found. Let's pray.